This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. So again, good morning, everyone. Welcome to anybody who's new. And um, uh, it is a great uh, delight uh, to welcome uh, Myoke Shonin. That's her title, uh, Reverend Priest Myoke Kane Barrett, um, who is the head of the Nichiren uh, community in Houston, a temple. Also the first uh, Western woman to be fully ordained in the Nichiren order and um, the first uh, person of African-American and Japanese descent uh, to be ordained as a, a Nichiren priest. Nichiren is a, many of us don't know much about Nichiren Shu, Nichiren uh, practice or uh, Nichiren Buddhism. But the founder, Nichiren, was a contemporary of Dogen's, a Japanese teacher who came to understand that the Lotus Sutra is the final teaching of Buddha and to study and practice from that sutra, which if you've delved into it, you know, is a very long and but fundamental sutra that we share, we revere in, in our Zen practice as well. Myoke Shonin was born in Japan um, and has lived in many places and has had quite a varied life and has uh, practiced for many, many decades, uh, practiced for many decades before taking ordination as a Nichiren priest. And part at least of her practice and her teaching is guiding uh, people all over the world, not just in Houston and uh, especially in prisons. It's a part, an important part of uh, what she does. So we are very fortunate that she found time for us. <laughs> today and I'm delighted that she's with us and uh, I'm very interested and eager to hear her teaching. So thank you again. Good morning everyone. Namu myoho denge kyo Namu myoho denge kyo Namu myoho so what I just chanted was the Odaimoku, or sacred title of the Lotus Sutra. So Myoho Denge Kyo is the Sutra of the Lotus Flower of the Wonderful Dharma, plus Nam, Namu, uh, devotion or respect for. I think I'm very fortunate to have encountered the Lotus Sutra. And it was something I learned after uh, I was ordained and speaking with family members in Japan that I learned that uh, this was the, my family's religion um, on my mother's side, even though my mother never spoke about it because um, she's just not a religious person. And one of the things that we do in the Nitran tradition, not everyone, but every February, because there are 28 days exactly, we read one chapter a day of the Lotus Sutra. It's either to read, recite, copy, or expound, and try to get into what the sutra is all about. And so today happened to be the chapter on Devadatta which is 
one of the people who tried to kill the Buddha and disrupt the Sangha. But also buried in that chapter is the story of the Dragon King's daughter, who at the age of eight, I believe, achieved her awakening. And this caused a great stir in the congregation, especially among the male disciples, because they all said, what makes you think a female is capable of achieving awakening? And so it's one of the stories that guides how women are approached in Buddhism, because um, it speaks primarily to the obligations that women have as daughters, as wives, and as mothers, but not anything in their own right, except for one part, where the Buddha greets her and she hands him her gem, which he accepts immediately. And that's a passage in the Lotus Sutra that everyone overlooks. And within the Nichiren school, it is said that him accepting her jewel means he accepted her enlightenment at that moment. And we're trying to spread that story and our interpretation of it so people can quit saying that women are incapable and unqualified to awakening unless they come back as men first. And uh, no, Nichiren Shonen once said, it, reading all of the sutras, that he would hate to be reborn as a woman because it was such a terrible life. And so I think that's what led him to be such a champion of women. So in, in my story, I consider myself very fortunate to have met the Lotus Sutra, no matter how I did it. I was always guided from the very beginning by women, uh, the Japanese war brides, and much of what I learned about practice was from their experiences, their shared stories that they told us about what was going on in their lives. And we, as their children, were able to witness. It's kind of like that story, you know, when somebody drops, uh, is cooking a ham and, you know, cuts off the end of the ham so it'll fit into the pan. And... The woman's daughters go on to cut the end off a ham every time, even if it doesn't need it. But they do it because they saw their mothers do it. And upon being asked, they said, well, you cut it off every time. I said, only because my pan was too small. So it helps to remember that uh, we have to chart our own course because the pan that our mothers had maybe was too small. And so, in the Lotus Sutra, the first half is the story of the historical Buddha. But the second half is when uh, the Buddha starts to speak to those of us who follow the Bodhisattva path. And it's quite remarkable. Every time I read it, I'm just floored by some of the insights I've seen. And one of the chapters we're working on is chapter 20. And I think that's one of the famous chapters uh, within your school because uh, two of your members from the San Francisco Zen Center 
wrote a song called My Hero about never despising Bodhisattva. And what's so interesting about never despising Bodhisattva was that his only practice was to say, I respect you, I'll never despise you, for I know you will practice the way and one day become a Buddha. And that's quite a remarkable thing to talk about how simple that was, even though we know it's very difficult. And especially in this day and time, when we are in what is considered the latter age of degeneration, where the Buddha's teachings have lost their impact and in many cases have lost their way because people don't know of the teachings. And all of us who are practicing today are so fortunate to have been called, to have been, um, I, I guess you'd say we made a choice that we're going to be here now so that we can do the simple practice of teaching people how to respect each other. Because that's the key, isn't it? And Jofukyo, or Bodhisattva Never Disparage, would simply do that to everyone. And all of the people that he met at that time were arrogant monks and nuns and people within the community that would say, oh, he's nuts. And they would throw rocks and uh, stones and bricks at him and just give him a hard time. And all he would do is back up and say, I respect you. I'll never despise you, for I know you'll be a Buddha someday. Can you imagine doing that um, to a, a, a MAGA person or a Klansman or the Oath Keepers? That's something I think for many of us would be extremely difficult. And I can just imagine in these times why we are here. Because we're here to practice the Bodhisattva way. To teach the Buddha's teachings, to share the Buddha's teachings about the value of a single life. About the value of our being able to embrace and hold each other up and our being able to recognize the Buddha nature within all beings. And that's something I think, especially now, is so desperately needed. One of the things I think about as a Bodhisattva is because so many people think we need to focus on following the Eightfold Path or, you know, or the Twelve-Link Chain. When the Bodhisattva Path is, is so simple, the vows that we took, you know, that sentient beings are innumerable, I vow to save them all. Our defilements are inexhaustible, I vow to quench them all. The Buddha's teachings are innumerable, I vow to study them all. The way of the Buddha is unexcelled. I vow to attain the path sublime. I didn't learn these for a long time. I, I would say to you that I practiced for 35 years before I heard the Bodhisattva vows. All I ever learned was to chant the Odaimoku, 
and portions of the Lotus Sutra. Simple practice. Chant, share the Dharma, chant, share the Dharma. The joy that I encountered when I was able to actually read and understand and take refuge in the Dharma was just quite amazing to me. Because suddenly, all of the efforts I had made in practice, I finally fully understood. And it wasn't that I was practicing without knowledge and wisdom. It's just I really didn't understand how it all fit together. So when I learned about the vows and the practice of a bodhisattva, I understood that I had always been doing it even though I didn't know what I was doing. Chanting Odaimoku changed me fundamentally from within. And one of the things it says about a bodhisattva is that as a bodhisattva, you become unable to be truly ugly or harmful naturally because that aligns your life with the life of the Buddha. And as bodhisattvas, we honor the Buddha nature. We respect Buddha nature within all beings. And it comes about gradually as a matter of course, simply by following our vows. And I learned also for myself, the negative thoughts I had, I used to... uh, as a child, think about committing suicide. Just like so many young people today, you know. And I remember that a thought would come if something was horrible or I couldn't deal with it, I'd say, well, maybe I'll just kill myself. And then one day I realized that thought had stopped completely. And it it hasn't reappeared. And the things I think about doing when I didn't care, you know, when I was much younger, that were harmful or would cause dissension in in the community or any of those things that people do when they're ignorant and unaware of the value of the relationships we have. I can't do them anymore. My anger disappeared. And I still have anger, but not the kind that wants to go out and beat somebody up in the parking lot. And there were times in my younger years, uh, because I was taught to fight, uh, I was in the boxing ring at age six. And so I would consider using my fist (laughs) to solve a problem. And I don't do that anymore. And so to understand that our vows allow us, as according to Nitrin, to be like a, a snake in a tube. That ultimately, what happens to us the more we practice and follow those vows is that the snake becomes straight. The same as you see plants growing in a hemp field are allowed to become straight because they are surrounded by all those hemp plants that grow up straight and upright. And that's the importance of our sanghas. 
our communities. Because without the community, we don't have the space to practice and bump off each other like potatoes in a potato washer. Without the people in our sanghas who are there just for us, there's no accident that they're there. They bring us to the mirror of our lives so that we're able to polish the mirror of our lives and in that way become totally transformed as a bodhisattva and as Buddhas bringing forth our Buddha nature every chance we can. And it's also to understand, I think particularly today, our bodhisattva path demands that we stretch ourselves to embrace all of those who are not walking our path. I'm arrogant enough to believe that Buddhism is the best path. That's me. <laughs> but and I always think that uh, Buddhism is the great ocean and all rivers flow to the ocean. There's a passage in the Sutra of Innumerable Meanings where the Buddha says that he appeared in many different places, in many different forms, and he taught to all different kinds of beings according to their capacities. And I came from a tradition initially that was very exclusive and often somewhat cult-like. And so anybody who didn't follow that particular path uh, was excluded from the Sangha. So when I read that in the sutra, I thought, you know what? This contradicts everything because it says that the Buddha could have appeared as Muhammad, as Jesus, as any number of bodhisattvas that were there to appear to lead all beings to awakening. Because it's not by accident that we're still here and that every path essentially is looking for a way to awakening. Even those people who appropriate meditation and yoga from uh, those of us considered Satanists <laughs> or heathens and say they know how to do it better than we do. But I don't mind in the sense that they recognize the gifts that we're bringing into the world and sharing as far and wide as we can. Because it is like Leonard Cohen said, that's those little cracks are where the light comes in. So one of the things I've learned as a Nitran Buddhist, especially coming out of uh, understanding our hero, Jofukyo, is all of the things that we suffer are the result of causes we've made in the past. Every bit of it. It's also a choice that we made to meet those issues now. It is said that our practices bring forth our future karma 
into the present so we're able to deal with them piecemeal. And so it's not all built up at this one place or time where it blows up on us, that we're able to overcome it gradually. And Nitrin always thought that you could absolutely transform your karma by the simple act of practicing the Odaimoku. Because the Odaimoku includes all of the teachings contained within the Lotus Sutra. He himself was persecuted relentlessly, but he took all of it to mean that he was on the right path and that he was doing what he was supposed to do and that there was no amount of suffering he couldn't handle, including attempted beheadings and murders and assassination attempts that plagued him relentlessly. And so when I look at myself as a woman of color, mixed race, why would I come to this world at this time? It was a choice. I think of it as a choice in terms of becoming a bridge to bring healing between two worlds that didn't really necessarily have healing. My life has been a picture of racism, not only from the Japanese community, the black community, and the rest of the communities. Um, and I would always ask myself, why? Why did I have to come out this way? And so from the beginning of my practice, I was always seeking my purpose. Because it didn't make sense to come into a world and have a life that was so awful for other people to witness. Even though my life was quite privileged early on growing up in a military family. And I'm so grateful for that beginning because it allowed me to see the world and not be hemmed in by growing up in a single place all my life and never understanding that we're the same worldwide. We all have the same kind of problems. None of us escapes birth, aging, sickness, and death. And that we can meet each other where we are. I learned that early because military families, you know, we're all Americans when we live elsewhere, no matter what our ethnicity. And so that as a youngster didn't come up as much as it did as I got older when I came back to the States. So even as a Buddhist, being in the middle of those two cultures, American and Japanese, was a task that I had to struggle with constantly. And it just being who I was brought with it many different kinds of issues. Um, when I was in the Navy, people thought I was Filipino, so naturally I was a whore that came to the United States because that's what Filipino women do. And it's something that I grew up with hearing people talk that way about my mother, that she married my father so she could come to the States uh, and be a citizen. 
And it's so interesting to me today to encounter the same kind of issues, not in my life, but in the lives I'm witnessing of Koreans, Vietnamese, the other Asians having the same thing. And it brings it all back. This is definitely the age of degeneration. Are we losing sight of our common humanity? And the Dharma is the thing that saved my life because it has allowed me to be a bridge simply by following the Bodhisattva path. One of the greatest gifts I received was from one of uh, the internment camp survivors. And these people will not usually talk to anyone about what happened to them and the difficulties they had. And I had written a piece about, historically, my understanding of what happened. And he said, you know, you get it. And he started to share with me how difficult it was, because he was a child when he was there. And... They would play baseball, they would ski, you know, they had fun because their parents tried to make their lives as normal as possible. When they were released from internment and went back to Japan to visit family, they were often accused of just not understanding suffering because they got to play baseball while the Japanese people were starving. And so there was a lot of exclusion that happened to them as a result of that. And so it's an issue that all of us face. It doesn't really matter where we came from, because we're all under the illusion that we are not one, that we are not interdependent. And we see it every single day. And the pandemic has exacerbated that issue so much that the illusion that we're not one with each other, we're not connected. And it's so unfortunate. I wish we could be in every school so we could teach all the children. They already know that, though, right? Kids welcome each other until the adults interfere. So I think that following our bodhisattva path gives us the wherewithal to find our purpose. And each one of us has a purpose. And the greatest joy in my life is finding that purpose and living that purpose. And so I'm always and will forever be eternally grateful to have encountered the Dharma in this lifetime and to have the opportunity to share it as much as I can with as many people as I can. Even though I didn't like the way we used to do it, much like Jehovah Witness, <laughs> and I'm so happy I don't have to do that again. <laughs> so I think that's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions or anything that I've not been clear about?
Welcome, Yoke. Thank you very much Thank for your you. Dharma talk. It's my sister. <laughs> I, I wish you would be here in person. And um, I wanted to ask you a question because you started by talking about Devadatta. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about your practice and uh, of when you find internally, when, when you find your own internal Devadatta, how do you practice with of emotions internally into being able to extend the same non-disparagement? Well, first of all, I have to accept responsibility for my arising Devadatta um, because he comes up. Uh, and I, I really just try to sit with that to examine within myself why. What triggered this reaction because i'm i'm dealing with that right now actually i have always felt that uh, people who lead have to be extremely careful to not use leadership as a weapon however sometimes you just want to because it would make the problem so much easier sometimes to just say, because I said so, um, type of thing. Uh, but I also understand that we have the function of being the role models, setting the course, and showing people actually how to do what it is we're teaching, however difficult it is. And so that's, I take responsibility. Say, this has purpose, this has meaning, and I'm responsible for finding out why it's interrupting me right now. And then I go chant about it. But I try my best not to react out of the definite. <laughs> Even though sometimes it might be fun, but uh, we all have that kind of opportunity to take a moment. So one thing I think that Buddhism affords us that we're not used to is to take that moment, you know, because we're in a world that rushes. You know, give me an answer right now. Let's solve this right now. It's, let me take that under discernment and I'll get back to you. Back. Thank you so much for your talk. Uh, you've been a real bridge for me because I've never heard uh, a Nichiren practitioner speak before, and I don't know much about the practice. And I just had a couple or a question about your practice. Do uh, Nichiren do any kind of seated meditation, or is it pretty much purely through chanting? We have a service that is called Shodaigyo, or chanting practice. And portions of it, very small portions, are silent. More of us have adapted silence into uh, our practice, even though we consider chanting to be a form of meditation. Thank you. Thank you again for your wonderful talk. Okay. Thank you. Mary. Roshi, it is it is so wonderful to see you. Thank uh, you. I still have the orchid you gave me. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I didn't kill it. <laughs> oh my! Oh, what a! Oh, you are such a gift to the world. Uh, from um, my days of practice, I am grateful to you for the contributions you made with me at the Houston Zen Center and now with the Austin Zen Center. Thank you for your talk. And I wondered if you could share your thoughts about um, there is a feeling that Nichiren Buddhism has a much more uh, appealing aspect to people of color than other forms of Buddhism. And I wonder if you could reflect a little on that. Sure. I think um, it comes from the early beginnings um, in the mo uh, more modern times. Because Nichiren Buddhism has been in the United States for over 115 years, I believe. Uh, but what everybody knew about was Soka Gakkai. And that's how I came into it here in this in the States. And the movement then, like I said, was like Jehovah Witnesses. You went and everywhere people scattered and would drag people back to meetings and, you know, it didn't cost you anything, just come and, you know, especially on military bases, young soldiers were always eager to go to a party, even a Buddhist party. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, back in the day, uh, that was in like in the 60s and uh, 70s. And so it's always been one that you could do anywhere. And you could do it when you were high. You could do it when you were you know, just out walking the streets. And the hook was that you could chant for anything you wanted. And people would get actual results from chanting for what they wanted. Even too many drugs, which brought the law, too many girlfriends, which brought turmoil, you know. So people learned how to use the practice the way it was intended after stumbling around in the beginning. So it was more a movement back then. And then as it started to change, it became more cult-like, unfortunately. Um, but there are over, I'd say, 35 or so different Nichiren schools. And so you have the Nipponzan Myohoji, who's been around for a long time. Those are the ones that go to all the peace marches and just drum and chant. You know, So it's very accessible in that sense that anybody can do it. You don't have to know what you're saying. You could just take it up and begin. And one of the things that I've found, especially now, is because we drum, people love that. And it does something to them physically that seems to touch their lives because of the drumming. There are a few people who are afraid of the drumming and will run out the door, but most seem to like it very much. But I also think it's because it's so easily accessible that way. And it doesn't require any long periods of, you know, retreat or anything like that. That you can just 
incorporated into your life. Of course, we have uh, in the Nichiren Shu tradition added the function of retreats so that people can get together and, and really practice as a community. Uh, but it's not a requirement. It, I guess you could say in many respects, um, it's been more adaptable in the sense of, even though it's Japanese, it also includes the different cultures. So you could go to a community and find um, them performing Luther Vandross or have a mariachi band, you know, that all of these cultures have been incorporated because there's a concept known as Zuihobini, that you practice according to the customs of the land, as long as it doesn't violate the basic uh, tenets of Buddhism. And so I look at the, like the weddings I did <laughs> this last year, there was a Mexican wedding, a soulful wedding, and um, a Highlander wedding, you know, with how it all came together, incorporating the different uh, Buddhist traditions into the wedding and what the people wanted to have happen as a result. You know, adding things like jumping the broom or one was tying a knot around the bride and groom together, those kinds of things. But just to make it very accessible, uh, kind of laid back. A little more laid back, I think, than most. I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> I mean, because one of the things I will tell you, uh, as being a woman of color leading a community, I have often been called out for talking about issues of racism and intersectionality, all of that. And my community has always included everybody. And I've never had a sangha that was, you know, all one thing or another. And I've had trans people, LGBT, you know, everybody, different ethnicities. Even my prison sangha started off as a white nationalist group and became a multi-ethnic group. And so it, it's always been to honor that portion of someone that they never thought was worthy and to help them get in touch with that. And so I talk about it. You know, I've brought in um, films on racism, on, you know, sexism, on... Uh, I'll never forget bringing in a film on the experiences of a gay man participating in community with seven other straight men. I don't know if you've seen uh, The Color of Fear uh, by Le Munois. He's made three different uh, films out of that initial one of having eight men come together for a weekend, two black, two white, two Asian, and two Latino and only four beds. So they had to figure that out. And one of the men happened to be gay. So the film highlights his experience. And I, I brought that into the prison because I thought it was important 
whatever. I get my wild hairs about doing things. And interestingly enough, it busted open the community and there happened to be within the Sangha a predator, which I didn't know about. But as a result of them viewing that film, he was exposed and transferred uh, away from the community to keep him from harming people. And I know that never would have happened if we hadn't done that with that film. And the same with the other ones about uh, the racial issues. There's a man for years, and he introduced himself to me as the ho-ass white boy. And he would never tell me his name. Never. And he was a man that was absolutely beaten down. And, you know, the protection systems they set up for each other in, in the unit. And I think it was two years ago that he finally gave himself permission to have a name. And so he no longer uses ho-ass white boy. And he's now a very strong and vibrant member of the uh, male community that they have up there. Men helping men kind of thing but also part of the Sangha. And it was the Sangha that busted that open for him. So I think it's a lot of really tackling real issues, no matter what people have to say about it. Because as I said, I do get called out that people say, well, you're the bishop, you shouldn't talk about that stuff. It's like, it's my life. This happens in my life. So I should be able to talk about it. And if the Dharma can't address those issues, then why should we deal with it at all? So, thanks for the question, Mary. And then Rob? Thank you so much for your talk. I really appreciate you coming, or not coming, but being <laughs> and coming to your computer to give this, this really wonderful talk. and. I actually was interested in Nichiren Buddhism before I started uh, at the Austin Zen Center. And uh, it's probably been 12 years I've been chanting Namu Yoho Renge Kyo. Is that, okay, is that one of the chants? Yeah. That is the chant. That is the chant. <laughs> uh, before I go to work, probably for like, I don't know, maybe 12 years or something. And it's always been this general. I just want to get through this day, kind of. Yeah. But I feel like, I don't know, maybe, and that's the, that's the extent of my practice with this, but, but it is something that I've stuck with, and I wonder, do you feel like it should be more focused when I'm chanting this, or is it okay to just kind of have a general, I just want to get through this day and not cause suffering and try to alleviate suffering? I mean, it's a very general. I think you have to affirm what you want and not just to make it through, to be able to say to yourself that something wonderful is happening to me. I feel it. I see it. I choose it. And maybe leave it at that. Because one of the things I think we often forget is that 
we tend to plant our own negativity. We tend to say, oh, well, my dad has high blood pressure, so I'm going to have high blood pressure. Or so-and-so died of a heart attack. It runs in the family. Rather than saying, I affirm a different result for myself and live that way. You know, uh, somewhere I remember reading the Buddha said the mind is like a garden. So be careful what you plant in it. So don't make your prayer a negative prayer. Have a great day. <laughs> I think uh, someone in the uh, window, one of the residents perhaps has a question. Are they living at the Zen Center? Wow. Hi. How nice. <laughs> Hi. Hi, I'm Manisha, and thanks so much for coming. So I have a question. It feels really confusing to me, so maybe you can help me discern what the question is a little bit. But I have found a, I've been in a series of quite abusive uh, relationships with men, and, and I find that I could not see that abuse at all while it was happening. And... Really, I left because someone on the outside who I love and trusted said, this is so abusive. And then many, many years later, I could start to see it. So I think there's a part of me that comes with this very naive wanting to see the best in people. And then part of me feels guilty that maybe something I chose brought me to that. And I just, uh, you talked about the predator in your community. And I wanted to ask you about how to like really have true discernment about you know, you can be compassionate, but have the sermon about if someone is treating you in a way that is harmful or comes with the harmful intent. Thank you. Number one, you don't have to stand for any harm that comes from anyone to you. And it goes all the way back to the notion that what comes to you is for your good. And I'll explain that. Um, I, I have similar experiences to what you're talking about. Mostly, of, of the feeling of unworthiness. Because I grew up as the first daughter, oldest child, so I was taking care of everything. And my father would say things to me like, um, I want to make sure that no man will suffer what I had to suffer with your mom when it comes to taking care of things. And so there was a lot of put down about being a female and what was important about being female was your ability to take care of a house and take care of children and cook and clean and all that good stuff. And my father was also... Uh, suffering from PTSD. He was also an alcoholic, so there was quite a bit of domestic violence in my home. And I didn't think anything of it uh, because it seemed that was normal, right? That's what I grew up with. And having to wear pants to school because I had belt marks on my legs, things like that. The deeper I got into my practice, the one thing I noticed was every guy that I ever dated always mistreated me. 
And it, it would be stupid stuff, you know, or just not valuing me. Um, and um, I remember one that did hit me and I retaliated with the shoe. And so <laughs> that was my finest moment. But I started to realize that there was a pattern in my life of abuse, disrespect, and, you know, it's like, why is this happening? The last one was a, a guy I thought I was going to marry who asked me to introduce him to my girlfriend so he could ask her out. And I thought, okay, that's it. I'm never going to date again until I clean up whatever it is in my life that is bringing these people into it. And I spent a year really challenging myself to chant about myself, to clean up whatever it was in my life that brought these people into it. And that's when I came to understand that it was all based on the rage that I had within my life. Because I had a ton of it. Mostly towards my father. And mostly towards every man that had ever hurt me. And the minute I realized it, it was gone. And my relationship with my father was transformed. As were all of the relationships with every male I met afterwards. And that was when I met my husband. We have to always get at the core issue that is driving our lives because it's not outside. And if we can take everything that happened to us as being for our good, as being for our purpose, then we can look at it differently. We don't have to say, oh, this is so horrible. You know, how am I going to survive it? We can look at it and say, okay, somehow I'm an abuse magnet. What's in my life that draws these people in? And until I resolve it, I choose not to engage. Because it's more important for me to have the beautiful relationship with myself that honors me that respects me. I think you'll see it in so many other small places and that don't get to the level of pure, you know, that full out and out abuse, but just little disrespectful things. It's like Maya Angelou would say that when you allow that in your space, it's like pulling out a hair and if you will continue to allow it, you will eventually end up bald. So all of these are, it sounds maybe a little bit Pollyanna-ish, but these are opportunities for us to challenge ourselves and transform our lives into what we want them to be. And it's never selfish to do that. We have a concept Jig yo keta, practice for yourself and practice for others. 
And practicing for yourself is practice for others because then you will be better capable of embodying the Buddha's wisdom with your life so that when you go out there, you take it with you and you spread it to everyone without them even knowing, without you even knowing, because it becomes the center of your life. So just keep telling yourself, I am worthy of all the love and respect I can find. You know, that is my path to be loved, to be respected. And I choose that now for myself. Okay. Melanie. Wow. I'm really blown away because I feel like well, your example of your life is incredible. I don't think, I don't know any other, what was the term that white guy used in the prison? Oh, a ho-ass white boy? ho-ass white boy. Um, I don't think we've heard that here in the Austin Zen Center before. I don't think you hear it anywhere else either. <laughs> I'm teasing. Because uh, I like that. I mean, I like that what some people might say is the lowest of the low of people in the world are people that you meet and talk to and consider worthy. I mean, I think the issue of worth, self-worth, at least for me, is really uh, uh, front and center. And I thought that um, throughout my life that I could just kind of cover that up. If that I, if I was successful in some way, that it would somehow, you know, erase that base feeling. But it, that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> and I'm curious about, um, you know, I feel like for me and mom. I heard the other day that uh, somebody famous was 80 and I've heard a lot of that lately, you know, so-and-so's 80 or 80 or 70 something and somebody's, but then somebody's died and they're either my age or younger or not that far away from my age. And I, I found myself really scared about getting older because I'm not that far from 80, more than 10 years, but that's not very long. <laughs> and so I feel like in some ways I'm just kind of waking up to things like that, a lot of the big unconscious patterns that have driven my life and still drive my life, I barely touched. And so I'm curious about what, you know, all of us in here in the song are at different stages, but for those of us that are older and of course younger, like this person you just answered, which I thought was a really profound answer. Um, what, if you have thoughts about getting older, maybe, you know, I, I suspect that, and I'm guessing for you, you're going to do what you do as long as you have a breath to, to help people and to try to transform the world. Um, but I'm curious about if you have thoughts or fears about getting older or if your practice has helped you face death, possibly. I mean, you will die, but so will we all. And Yeah. Right? <laughs> of course I have thoughts about that because um, I just hit 71 and it's, it's those thoughts that 
uh, I grew up with a dad who would say, oh, this is my last Christmas. You know, <laughs> every year he would say that. And so one year it was, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> and he was um, 62. And I thought, wow, that's really young. Really young. And so I kept hoping I had my mother's genes. But I think that I'm not old. That's the thing. I know I'm, that number, 71, is supposed to mean old. And I always question, what does that mean? You know, because I still feel like I'm 20 or 30 sometimes. And I'm just as outrageous as I was back then. And it's just a number. Right. I mean, of course, we all have uh, issues of vanity and, you know, what's that spot right there? <laughs> or the look at that skin, those all those things. But it's not it's kind of a, a wonder, I think, because nobody talks to you about aging. Nobody talks to you. I mean, as a female. Who ever said to you that you're going to go through this life with this misery once a month and then it's going to go away? Nobody ever said that. Or that your head was going to blow up because of hot flashes. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would say, dang, we need to form a group of women who talk to young women and say, look, this is going to happen to you. You know, your body's going to do all this weird stuff, you know, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> and I, I look at it um, in, in partially in amazement because you're starting to see more older women on television, right? And I realized that they've been lying to us all these years, so nobody knew what 60 or 70 really looked like because they would have these old women and they were maybe 80 instead of 60. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so the truth has never been told. And, you know, even though aging has slowed, slowed, slowed me down just a tad, you know, and I think that's pandemic related, actually. I'm still raring to go. You know, I keep, my mom and I are planning a trip to Japan. If they ever lift uh, the barriers to getting in. But at the, just at the start of the pandemic, we had just finished a trip to Japan and spent two weeks hanging out together. So, <laughs> you know, I never thought I'd spend that much time with my mother. But, um, yeah, I, it's an adventure, kind of. Do you know what I mean? Because who knows what's coming and what's next. And just knowing, I think the one fear I have that I'm working on is taking care of myself. Because I don't want to be a burden. And I also don't want to have to struggle with taking care of myself. I want to be able to do that. As long as I could do that, I'm happy. So take care of yourself, right? Yes. <laughs> and enjoy it.
Yes. Wow. <laughs> well, uh, more power to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're all getting there. <laughs> you know, all the things that you do, I'm really yeah. grateful Thanks. for you in the world. Thank you. Uh, Catherine Van Zanten offered uh, in the chat that to me, okay, that your talk was incredibly helpful and so caring and inspiring. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, Harnu, thank you for your thoughtful talk. It's so nice to hear about your practice. I have a question, just a brief question, about chanting the O Daimoku, and um, there are there are practices and other forms of Buddhism of chanting. Uh, or taking refuge in Amida Buddha as a kind of devotee. We think of it in our terms, Western terms, perhaps as a devotional practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think I read in, in uh, looking around the internet <laughs> for something to <laughs> in Buddhism that um, to chant the Odaimoku is actually to chant the whole of the sutra. So yeah. to name the sutra is to chant and inhabit the sutra. Um, which I find a very powerful kind of perspective. Um, and I would, in, in Zen, although not in temples I practice in, there is this practice of say, fanning the sutras, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. large accordion folded volumes of uh, sutras that are like, like, you know, reminds me of an accordion actually, you know? So yeah. Yeah. And in fanning each volume, the whole thing is read or chanted and the, the words fly out into the world mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on various occasions. So I find this a kind of interesting intersection with the most elaborate practices of you know, Zen that we don't really do here so much. But I wonder if you could say a little bit, you've spoken very eloquently about the power of chanting Namu Myoho Renge Kyo. Could you, could you say a little bit more about that understanding of chanting just the Odaimoku as chanting the heart? Uh, the, sorry, the uh, Lotus Sutra. Nichiren Shonen says that we should remember that when we touch the Lotus Sutra, our hands become the Buddha's hands. And that when we recite it, our mouths become the Buddha's mouth. So that any connection that we have with it is taking it in and exposing all of it. It's taken a long time to really feel that um, because it was always just getting caught up in the, the chanting. Uh, because we used to, uh, one thing I could say about Soka Gakkai, they chant for hours and hours and hours. And we used to do that. Um, and we're still doing it now in Nitrinshu to chant for um, global peace and healing. It's just that that becomes a vehicle that connects you to everything there is. I guess is the easiest way to say it. Because I remember uh, when I was younger one time I was chanting in, I was studying, excuse me, in uh, a study carol at school. And the sound that came through the air vents was of hundreds of thousands of people chanting the Odaimoku. 
And I'm sitting there thinking I have lost my mind, <laughs> you know, because I'm studying. Why is this happening? But then I, I became connected to the notion that when we chant, there are untold numbers of beings doing the same thing at the same time. And that our idea of time is something that may not be quite correct. You know, that it's everything is now. Everything is happening now. And th that's when I came to feel that the act of chanting not only incorporates all of the teachings, it makes you embody those teachings in the sense that when you chant together, that connection you feel with other people and other beings that are sharing the space is quite powerful. And it can be unbroken because that's what happens in Sangha. When a Sangha that chants together and practices together builds an unshakable bond and understands that we mirror each other. There's so much that happens just through this simple act of practicing together within Sangha that we don't even think about. And your school, a Soto Zen school, is also grounded in Tendai Buddhism. And so you guys, I think you do chapter 25 sometimes of the Lotus Sutra, uh, the Kanon, Kanzeon. For a long time, there was Kanzeon everywhere, <laughs> you know, big cults of Kanzeon, Kuan Yin today. So we share a lot of similarities. And I, I was just reading something yesterday that said um, Japanese Zen is more closely aligned with Nichiren than Western Zen. But that you guys are coming back into alignment with some of those things about chanting different portions of the Lotus. Because Dogen did a lot with the Lotus Sutra. And so all of us, you know, Jodo, Zen, and uh, Nichiren share a great deal in our teachings that I think we're not aware of. I noticed that the uh, Japanese Buddhists always work together. You know, the Jodo, Pure Land, uh, Zen, and Nichiren. They're always together, working together, supporting each other especially here in the West, and especially the Japanese. You'll see them working together. So I, I think the ways in which we do this, we're all pulling different pieces of foundational stuff out and using it that in a way that works best for us. You know, I like some of the things I've seen with the Zen community. I think it was in that movie, Enlightenment Guaranteed, because that's where I saw the fanning and also the quick walking, <laughs> you know. And some of those things are quite lovely. And I think that sometimes we also, in our haste to 
westernize, lose some things that are quite valuable because of their connection to the origins. You know, I mean, even some of the holidays we celebrate go all the way back, like Obon, go all the way back to early Buddhism. And who knew that? All you saw was the dancing and the boats and all that good stuff. Uh, but to know it, it historically has a foundation that is quite meaningful. So I don't know if I answered your question. Kind of went off. <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, thank you for your answer. And I think it's, um, we get siloed into our schools and our practices and it takes some effort. Um, and so yeah. kind of outreach, you know, with yeah. the other, uh, and some curiosity to, to ask, you know, like, what is the meaning of what you're doing? And, oh, we study the Lotus Sutra too, or, you know, we, so there are a lot, there's a lot of resonance in what you said today for me and I'm deeply grateful to you for your presence and example are very, um, they touched me. And I think everybody here who's still here is wrapped, I have to say. <laughs> so, uh, thank well, you so much for your Thank you. And I, I tell you, I, really treasure my friendship with you and the Houston Zen Center. You know, it's been happening for quite a while. We're really glad we could schedule you and okay. I hope, hope you'll come sometime in person. Or sure. we'll visit you. <laughs> <Make a choice. laughs> it's not that far. Yeah, yeah. I also just want to say Austin Zen Center and all the teachers who uh, come to teach here are supported by your donations. Uh, so if you feel moved to offer uh, Paramita a donation, a gift to either the temple or to our uh, teacher today, you can do that through the website. Thank you very much for your generosity. Thank you so much, Miyoke. 